Uh, that is our theme today, In Christ Alone. Bill, thank you for that. That's a great way to start it off. Uh, let me pray. Uh, for, just pause for a moment. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your grace by which you gave us life and salvation. I pray that you would glorify yourself in our hearts and our speech today. Lord, in any way that we have sinned against you, I pray that you would forgive us. You would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You would give us clean hands and hearts. Lord, would you cause our fellowship with you today to be unhindered. Lord, help us to fully worship you and praise you and give you the due that you are your worth, Lord. We want to honor you today and ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so it's that, uh, it's that time of year. Today we're kicking off the annual elder series, a teaching series. This year it's called Parables and Sayings of Jesus. So over the next five weeks, you'll hear from each of the elders. They're going to teach on a, a select number of the parables. And so I'm looking forward to hearing that. Now, we've made this series. It's a regular part of our teaching schedule. It's kind of an intentional effort of the elders to hold ourselves accountable to the qualifications for elders that are listed in Timothy and Titus, stating that an elder should be able to teach. And so that's what we're doing. Now, of course, Mike Halpin, he's our primary uh, teaching elder. We hear him almost every week. Um, as for me, I just make an annual pilgrimage to this podium, kind of like a groundhog emerging from my burrow. I appear, I teach, I see my shadow, and then I leave for another year. So, <clears throat> so <laughs> if you're new here and you're wondering, what's that guy doing up here? Well, that's what the deal is today. So, But I'm just, I've been, I'm really glad to have this time together. I've been looking forward to sharing this with you. So our theme is in Christ alone. Bill started us off with that. I've got a bunch of stories to get to that point here at the end, so you know where we're going. Uh, Nini's Deli, there's a, there's a restaurant in Chicago called Nini's Deli, or there was. Uh, Nini's, it's an iconic pink brick building. It was a hub for the community, and it was a destination spot for people coming into Chicago. So you went to Nini's for this legendary food, and then you took your photo in front of the pink, built, uh, pink brick building. Tongue twister. The Rioscos were the owners of the store. They started a grocery store back in the 70s. It was called Nini's. They lived above the store, and the, neighbor, and the uh, grocery store was a neighborhood institution. Now, their son, Juan, he wanted nothing to do with the grocery store. You know, Juan, he's a criminal. He's uh, sexually immoral, and he's an actual literal worshiper of the sun and the moon and the stars, and all Juan wants is more criminal activity. He wants more sexual immorality, and he wants to pursue them all with a vengeance. But... The Lord, in working through Juan's mother, brings salvation to Juan, and Juan renounces his former life. He becomes a radical, bold, sold-out follower of Jesus, and he takes over the store, and he turns it into Nini's Deli, and then Juan has a mission now. He's going to serve his customers as if he is serving Christ. So Juan knew his customers' names. He knew their families. He knew their stories. He knew their food allergies, he knew their regular orders, and then because of that, he could share his story with them, and Juan was not ashamed of his story. So because of this great service, soon the line is wrapped around the block to get into Nini's. They were the number one restaurant in Chicago on Yelp. They were in the top 100 restaurants in the nation. Juan became an in-demand business speaker. The Chicago sports franchises, they wanted to collaborate with Juan on uh, marketing. Adidas and Nike collaborated with Juan on clothing lines. And then famous musicians were wearing Juan's gear. Juan was praised for his work in the community. And then nearly overnight, this all comes crashing down. So after the death of George Floyd last year, the Black Lives Matter organization contacted Juan 
and they began to pressure him to make a statement in supporting BLM and then also supporting them financially. You know, Juan, he's Latino, he's in the community, his, his uh, support would be important to BLM. The problem is now, Juan is taking his cues from God only. And so he's not going to say something that's false or has something false associated with it, and so he refuses to make a statement. And then came Blackout Tuesday, if you're familiar with that. It's where businesses and individuals, they were asked to post a black square on the social media pages in support of the protest. And again, Juan refuses. So people began to pressure Juan. They're demanding to know, Juan, why won't you post the square? And so he finally makes a statement on his social media, and he says this. He says that he loves and supports his black brothers. He believes that all lives matter, and all lives are made in the image of God. And so you probably know what's going to happen next. That's all it took, and the mob released their wrath on Juan. He's immediately denounced by the sports teams, the corporations that he had partnered with, uh, the customers turned their backs on him. The, the deli is disparaged with one-star reviews. His employees quit. The, Juan, uh, the, the mob is saying to Juan, put the fist up, Juan, or we're going to burn you down. And so within days, protests against Ninis are organized and thousands show up at the deli. And then that's it for the Riascos. It's over. They have to leave uh, their business. They have to leave their home, which they lived above the business. They actually have to leave the state uh, because of death threats. And then Juan is shoved and he's spit on as he walks out of his restaurant for the last time. And then the mob takes over and they paint the pink walls of the deli black. He walks out and the mob paints his, his restaurant. Juan wouldn't meet the supposed righteous standard of the mob. And so he was declared beyond redemption. Or as we would say today, they canceled him. They canceled Juan, they canceled Ninis. It's heartbreaking, it's outrageous, of course. But it's nothing new. This is just the latest attempt by humanity to answer the age-old question, who is righteous? Who determines what righteousness looks like? And so this cancel culture, or I prefer the term contempt culture, it's when someone or a group, they have so much contempt for another person's actions or beliefs that they use whatever power they have to cancel that other person, the offending person. They censor them, they harm them. One person holds another person accountable to a moral standard, or they hold themselves to a moral standard, often of their own creation. You know, this contempt culture, it's as old as Cain and Abel. Abel was commended as righteous by God for his offering that was offered in faith, and Cain was not. And the reason for that was that Cain came to God with his own standard of righteousness, and he was not accepted. And of course, Cain showed contempt for God. He showed contempt for his brother, and he murdered Abel. And so there's a fundamental tension at work here. It's this whole thought that there is a standard of righteousness in creation that we must contend with. There is a standard of righteousness in creation that we must contend with. And this is plainly stated in Romans 1, which says... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
So this is, this is creation's fundamental dilemma that we are not right with God. We are lawbreakers. We are deserving of God's wrath. And that knowledge hangs in the air of creation as well as the question, how can one be made right with God? How can you be justified by God, the true God of the universe? And even if we suppress the truth of God, the question doesn't go away. It just becomes different. It becomes, how can I be made right with a God that I create in my own image? Or how can I be made right with a God that I create of myself? And this is from which all of this self-righteous contempt and this chaos comes from. It's the false question and false answer where we determine what righteousness looks like. So worldwide religions are created and nations go to war on this false basis. But God has a single answer on how one can be justified and it's not open to interpretation or modification. And so with that, we're gonna jump right into the parable and we're gonna see how God answers the question. So our text today is Luke 18, nine through 14. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And you've got that passage on your study sheet, but I'm gonna go ahead and read through that. And if you wanna follow along with me, that'd be great. And so he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Luke, he gets right to the point on this one. This is a little bit unusual for parables, but he gets right to the point. He lets us know who the parable is intended for, and that is for some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and that they treated others with contempt. So Jesus is now gonna use the character of a Pharisee as an example of this type of person. And of course, you know that the Pharisee is an often used target in Jesus' stories for the type that is opposed to the true nature of the kingdom of God. Because they're hypocritical and they're proud, Jesus says that they preach, but they do not practice. But this wouldn't be uh, addressed only to Pharisees or to all Pharisees, rather it's directed to anyone who holds self-righteous attitudes and shows contempt. So the introduction it should have our attention because we recognize that type of behavior. We can probably recall when we've been on the receiving end of someone's self-righteous attitudes or contempt. And if we're real, we can probably recall when we have held these attitudes as well. So we know what's gonna follow is gonna have real life implications for us. So the story is now a story of extreme contrast. It's between the heart of someone who is self-righteous, which is the Pharisee, and the humble heart of someone who knows their broken status before God, which is a tax collector. It's a conflict between man's view of righteousness and then God's view of righteousness. So the Pharisees, they are the, they're the religious class, they're the teachers of Israel, they're the leaders of the synagogue. They hold to the teachings of the Torah, but they also hold at equal value the oral tradition that was passed down in how to interpret the law. So the Pharisees are serious about purity before God. The meaning of the word Pharisee is separated, they're, that they would be separated from sources of ritual and purity. They're separated from Gentiles, they're separated from non-religious Jews. 
And so for their understanding or to their own ends, the Torah and the oral law, they show down to the smallest detail of temple worship and all of life worship how to be right before God, how to be accepted by God. So these leaders, they're respected. They're the model to emulate. Jesus even acknowledges that the Pharisees' function is as interpreter of the law, and he says to practice and observe whatever they tell you. Now, in doing that, Jesus is talking about God's word, not the oral tradition. He's not talking about a hypocritical obedience, but he does point that out. The Pharisee, he's thought to be the human example of what righteousness looks like. So now we, can, we contrast that outwardly moral and spiritually devout life with that of the tax collector. So while the Pharisee enjoyed the support of the people, the tax collector was absolutely despised by the people because the tax collectors, they were Jews working for the Roman occupiers. The tax collector was viewed as a traitor because he was aiding the enemy. The tax collectors, they were notorious for extorting more tax than required in order to pocket their extra for themselves. And because of their cheating, they're probably well-to-do compared to the rest of society, the working class, which just further sets them apart in society. They were outcasts. They were social outcasts. And so the tax collector type is also a target for Jesus and his teachings. For example, when he says, uh, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So the tax collector is not morally or spiritually devout. He's rebellious against God. From the outside, the Pharisee and the tax collector's lives are on opposite ends of the spectrum. But they're about to find themselves in the same place at the same time with their hearts exposed to God. So two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So the Pharisee, he comes in uh, confidence. He's comfortable here. He addresses God, and then he immediately turns his focus and compares himself to others. He turns his focus inward with five I statements. He says that I thank you, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know, he's alone here, but he's not alone because he's brought all his good works with which to commend himself. Now, these statements are probably all true, that he is morally upright, which is good. He's not unjust. He's not an adulterer. He's nothing like the tax collector. He's spiritually devout. He fasts twice a week. Only one fast a year was required. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. He gives tithes of all that he gets, even down to the smallest herbs he receives. This wasn't required by the law, but this is good. It's even commended by Jesus. So the, tax, the, the Pharisee, he has gone above what is required. He's attempting to keep the 613 commandments and then some. But in his own achievement, he has become proud. You know, in his prayer, there's no sense of the holiness of God, the difference between a creator God and created man. There's no sense of need for repentance, of re restoration to be made. You know, the Pharisee has worked hard to get there and he exalts himself. He trusts in his works and he justifies himself by his works. He approaches God because of himself. And now there is such an ease and comfort here. There's such an undue familiarity that he feels at liberty in the presence of God to pass judgment and show contempt toward a fellow image bearer. The Pharisee will determine who can be made right with God, who can be justified as he is justified. 
So two men went up to the temple to pray, but who in the world is the Pharisee praying to? It appears that he's praying to a God that he has created in his own image. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, so like the Pharisee, the tax collector is confident, but unlike the Pharisee, he is anything but comfortable here. The Pharisee's confidence, it reeks of arrogance. The tax collector's confidence, it tells of a humble desperation coming to the place of his only hope, his only means of salvation. His confidence is that God will show him mercy. So he's standing by himself. He's unclean. He's not worthy to draw near to God or to others. He's alone. He has brought nothing with him. He has no works to commend himself to God. He hasn't kept the law. He has been rebellious to God. He knows the true state of his heart and the weight of his sin won't even let him lift his eyes to heaven. And in his grief, he beats his breast as a sign of contrition. Now, this is the true inner state of both men. In this, they're both alike. Both of them are sinners, both in need of God's mercy. One of them knows it, one of them does not. The tax collector is reckoning to the truth that all of creation, for good or bad, will reckon with. Per Romans 1, we are all lawbreakers and we know it. We're all deserving of God's wrath and we know it. His response is, I'm a sinner, deserving of your wrath, be merciful to me. Now Jesus, it, when he's telling this parable, he's actually walking to Jerusalem where he is soon gonna be crucified. But his work on the cross is not in view here. So Jesus, in telling this story, he's putting the words in the mouth of the tax collector, the phrase, be merciful to me. Now when Jesus has the tax collector say this, the listeners are gonna think of the animal sacrifice made for atonement, the sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. The day of atonement in which the priests offer an animal sacrifice for the people's sins and blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat of the ark. So as commentators relay, this phrase, be merciful, it means be propitiated or be mercy seated toward. Or further translated out, it means treat me as one who comes on the basis of the blood shed on the mercy seat as an offering for sins. So Jesus puts the words in the tax collector and has the tax collector say this, treat me as one who comes on the basis of the blood shed on the mercy seat as an offering for sins. The box that is the Ark of the Covenant, it contains the law of Moses. In sinning, the tax collector has broken the law. Lawbreakers must make restitution. And for God to be a just God, he must require payment. The mercy seat sits over the box. It's the covering over the ark, the covering over the mercy seat over the law. The mercy seat is sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice that atones for sin, that satisfies the payment, that satisfies the tax collectors deserve wrath from God. And it's on this basis through grace that mercy can be extended to the tax collector and justice can be satisfied. Now, as we view this parable from our vantage point, we know what Jesus is about to do. That because it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, Jesus is gonna finish his journey into Jerusalem where the initial shouts of Hosanna are gonna to turn to contemptuous shouts of crucify him. He is gonna be falsely accused, he'll stand trial, he's sentenced for crimes that he did not commit, abused, whipped, and finally hung on the cross in torture. It's Jesus who lived a perfect, righteous life who is the unblemished, ultimate, 
and final sacrifice. He is the only sacrifice. He is the only work that is acceptable to God for payment of sin. And Jesus is the answer to the question that hangs in the air of creation. How can one be made right with God? It's through Jesus and through his atonement. So all of life, all of time before the cross, it pointed forward to that moment. All of time since the cross points back to that moment. The cross is ground zero. It's the only place from which true life can begin. So the tax collector, he comes to God on the basis of Christ's future work on the cross. We come to God on the basis of Christ's past work on the cross. And with the tax collector, we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then comes the interpretation of the parable. And Jesus says that I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this would be a stunning conclusion to the parable for those listening in that day. For those that would have heard Jesus say previously, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this seems to be a complete reversal. What's up is down, what's down is up. Jesus, as the master storyteller, in about six sentences, has destroyed the religion of self-achievement. He's revealed his heart in the process, and he has made known how man can be made right with God. The answer to our fundamental dilemma is the gospel. We are sinners separated from God, but God made a way of reconciliation, and that is through Jesus alone, not by our works. So, the tax collector who comes with nothing, he leaves with everything. He has been declared righteous, the humble has been exalted. <clears throat> now this is interesting. If this parable wasn't enough to make Jesus' intentions clear, there's additional stories in Luke's gospel, actually in Luke 18, the very chapter that we're in, that continue to put this point forward. So immediately following our parable is the story of the children and Jesus, which you're familiar with, when, Je when the people were bringing their infants to Jesus, and then the disciples tried to prevent that from happening. But Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus is telling us the attitudes of the heart that please him the humility of the tax collector, the trust of the child. But among other things here, he's pointing back to salvation. Coming to God without self-achievement, with simple trust in him is required. To be like a child, to be empty-handed, you're unable to create some body of work that's going to commend you to God. We're helpless. We're only able to receive. Or the story that follows that one immediately, which is of the rich ruler. The rich ruler who comes to Jesus and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies that he should keep the commandments. And the ruler says, I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus says, well, you still lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. But the ruler is not willing to do that. Now, in answering this way, Jesus is not saying that keeping the commandments and selling all you have is how you inherit eternal life or how one is justified. Rather, he's showing the ruler who is coming to Jesus on his own merit, like the Pharisee in our parable, that he is not perfectly keeping the law. If you're coming to God based on the law, on your works, then you must perfectly keep the law, which no one is capable of doing. So we cannot miss what Jesus is saying here. Are we saved by our works? No. 
What if we, if we lay down our life for another? No. If we uh, cast out demons and prophesy in Jesus' name? No. You know, our works will follow our salvation, but they do not precede our salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's Jesus justifies sinners, period. Now, there's another point to make in the conclusion of this parable, and this is just glorious. It says, the tax collector went down to his house justified. When he left the temple, he had been declared righteous. So his cry for mercy, it was answered immediately. So notice that the narrative here, it doesn't read this way. That the tax collector, he cried for mercy. God heard him, but God was still really ticked at him. After all, the guy had been a sinner his whole life. So God waited and he watched. He watched as he left the temple and over the next few weeks to see if his repentance was real to see if he would do some works that would indicate the true state of his heart. And then eventually, but only reluctantly, God justified him. And that's not what it says, thankfully. So look at this. The parable of the persistent widow immediately precedes our parable. So in this parable, there's a widow in need of justice on a matter, and she takes her case before a judge who is described as unrighteous. She repeatedly brings her case to the judge. He refused to hear the case or to grant justice. But then after a while, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. And then the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Jesus is saying, I am not like the unrighteous judge. I am the opposite. Jesus is ready and willing to hear our pleas. He doesn't need to be nagged. He doesn't need to be manipulated. He does not answer us in concern that we are going to wear him out with our coming. He is compassionate. He is not indifferent. He is not slow to answer. You come to Jesus with faith alone, and he runs to extend mercy to you. Got a question. Is this the Jesus that we know? The Jesus that says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So when the tax collector comes to God, he rightly brings a heart that is grieving, but he also rightly knows God's heart towards him that he can approach on the means that God himself has provided. And I think these truths, these two truths, that salvation is in Christ alone with nothing added and the nature of Jesus' heart towards us, they are so important to have settled within ourselves. You know, we always come back to the cross to get our bearing because that's our ground zero. But knowing Jesus' heart, it informs so much of how we carry ourselves in this life. So do we know Jesus as gentle and lowly in heart? You know, this is a question I often ask myself and I'm always interested I ask others as well. How, how do you experience the Lord? How, do, how are your interactions with him? And are these sometimes difficult things to figure out or even to talk about? You know, I know for me, I've been walking with the Lord for 50 some years now. I know for a fact that Jesus' heart is gentle and lowly to me. He has proved it over and over again. You know, I know um, God's presence with me every day. 
But there are a handful of times in my life that I've known the Lord's presence with me in a much more profound way. Now, you wouldn't, wouldn't say it's a more real way because it's not, but it's like it's a more real way. It's a more understandable way. You know, it is hard to describe what the fellowship is like in those moments. But these are usually times when God is confronting me with my sin. But the way that God does that, it's not like anything else in this world. And the way that Jesus extends love towards me is not like any love I would ever know in this world. You know, it's otherworldly. It is divine. And he speaks kindly to me and he shows me my sin. Or like... Um, when he asked the layman at the pool, do you want to be healed? He asked, do you want to be free? And his kindness and his question, they're not born out of the uncertainty of what my response is, but it's rather his strong sovereignty, his assurance of what he is going to do in that moment. And there's no doubt as to what's going to happen. In this kindness, my repentance, it's immediate. There's no debate here. There's no defending my position. I want to move as far away from my sin as possible. And even though I know I should be crushed, I have a real understanding that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You know, I should be the one that is seeking God's forgiveness, but it's God that pursues me to restore our fellowship. And I'm overwhelmed by the life and the peace and the pleasure that God extends to me in that moment, and I never want to leave. I want to live in that moment forever. And these are moments that God is dealing with me in my sin, in my failings. I can hardly imagine what unbroken fellowship will be like with him one day when sin is finally and fully removed. Jesus is nothing like the unrighteous judge. His heart is gentle and lowly towards us, and we need to know that. This is the good news. Jesus justifies sinners. But there's another side here, and in turn, what is Jesus saying to the Pharisee? What is Jesus saying to those who show contempt? He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So rather than the other, these are absolutely chilling words of judgment for the Pharisee. Jesus does not justify those who have no need of him. He does not justify those who are self-righteous. The Pharisee in his pride, he's exalted himself. His pride has blinded him and he is not forgiven. Pride, and especially religious pride, is condemned. The Pharisee is now facing an eternally life-threatening situation. Unless you accept that only God can justify sinners, he will be eternally condemned. Now, if we see ourselves in the Pharisee, or in the parable this morning, if we find that we are associated fully with the Pharisee, it means that we have rejected the true gospel or we don't know what the gospel is. And today is the day we should humble ourselves and cry out to Jesus for mercy and salvation. Or if you say to me, I find myself in the parable as a sinner because I do know the true gospel, but I do still see some of the attitudes the Pharisee holds. I see those in myself. I would confess I'm right there with you. You know, all too often, uh, contempt has been my companion. So I just want to say a few words here as we turn about the heart attitude to whom the parable is addressed to, and that's those who trust in themselves and they show contempt. So when we find ourselves with hearts that are elevated with pride 
and we have contempt for others, this should be an absolutely serious warning sign for us that we are in danger of losing sight of the true gospel. You know, pride is insidious. It can manifest itself all along a spectrum of heart attitudes and actions. It can look like uh, self-disparaging thoughts that appear to be humble, but are actually contempt for God, or it can look like some outrageous behavior in a moment of anger. You know, maybe we don't find ourselves like the Pharisee in making a final judgment of who is justified or not, but are we harboring a place in our hearts that nurtures Pharisaical pride? You know, wherever we are along this, this pride spectrum, it puts us in direct opposition to our Savior, in which James 4 says that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So truly, the definition of insanity is to live in any kind of way that you know God is directly opposed to you. So we should ask ourselves, where do we find ourselves in opposition to God? So think about your interactions with your family or your friends or work or here among the body of Christ. You know, I know um, working on this teaching, God has mercifully slayed me over and over again, pointing to my heart and the pride that I hold there. And initially I was so struck by that, I asked the Lord to put a guard over my mouth and keep me from saying the things that are contemptuous or uh, that would ridicule or making that clever but snarky comment thing. And I find when God did that, that I didn't have very many words left to say. It was like finding myself in a foreign land and I don't know the language here. I don't even know how to communicate in a way that isn't stained by my pride. So on your uh, study sheet there, you've got some questions that I wrote um, to maybe help us discern a little bit where we are on the, on the pride spectrum. Um, hopefully we'll prayerfully work through that. Um, it may be more, and maybe you'll find it like me, it's more extensive than you thought. So I hope that you'll do that. <clears throat> so as I'm uh, winding down here, I just want to briefly touch on two specific points related to our pride and how we respond to others. So the first is, what is our response to those outside of the body? So our response to the culture at large, to the mob, to the cancel culture. So we may be righteously outraged by the things that are happening that are opposed to God. It would be easy for us to answer the self-righteous attitude of the day with our own self-righteous response. But in doing that, we do lose sight of the gospel and we forget from where we came. So, you know, the mob is crying out for justice. And of course they are. Things are not as they should be. And we know that. We can identify with them in that. You know, the mob cries out for identity. And they search for that in their sexual identity or their political preference or any number of convictions. Of course they do. We can understand that as well. We've been there. Just as we were, they are untethered from Jesus. They have no sense that justice will ever be done. They have no sense of secure identity that only Christ can provide. These are God-given desires for justice and identity, and they're answered in the gospel. They need the gospel, delivered in humility, delivered in the Christ-like kindness that brought you and me to repentance. You know, the gospel may offend them, but God forbid that it's our self-righteousness that would offend them. And the other one is our response to the body of Christ. <clears throat> so I want to commend to you a scripture this morning as a means of analyzing our hearts towards our brothers and sisters. So there's a great, great Psalm, Psalm 16, and this great phrase in here that David says, and he says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. 
So the saints, uh, David is referring to righteous Israel. He's talking about the worshiping community. For us, that's the church worldwide or the church right here this morning. It's our brothers and sisters. David is delighting in those who identify themselves with God. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that interpersonal relationships are always, in free, always easy or free of conflict. We obviously know that. But it does speak to a default position of the heart that we would delight in those whom God has saved. We delight in those who God delights in. You know that we're all leveled at the foot of the cross. We're all sinners. We've all been justified by Jesus. And toward our fellow image bearers, those that God has adopted as his very own sons and daughters, our pride and contempt have no place. God is opposed to us when we conduct ourselves with arrogance or frustration or in cynicism or sarcasm. He's commanding a conformity to the image of his son, and we know his son's heart is gentle and lowly towards us. So a church body in which humility is exalted is counter-cultural. If we want to look different than the world, then let's root out all pride and contempt. And this would be the type of community that points to a future kingdom, a kingdom not of this world. So can we say, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight, and let's ask God to make that true of us. So worship team, if you'd like to come. You know, so we all live under the same heavens that declare the glory of God. We're all subject to the wrath of God because of our unrighteousness. We share the common question, how can one be made right with God? And we share a single answer to that question, and that's Jesus. And if Jesus has saved you, we all share a a common testimony. And that is, before the foundations of the world were set, before darkness was divided by light, God chose us in Christ to be adopted as sons and daughters. And at the right time, God sent his son into the world to redeem those under the law, and he has set the captives free. Sinners in need of mercy, he has set free. And this was not of our own doing. It was the gift of God. It wasn't the result of works, so that no one may boast. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. The only works of salvation that matter are the work of Christ's righteous life, his death on the cross and his resurrection. And all of creation looks to that single point in time where true life is made possible and freedom is won. So we are no longer children of wrath. We are no longer slaves to sin. Jesus has freed us from the self-righteous thoughts that we can't be good enough to come to him or that we can be. He has freed us from the thoughts, the, uh, the contemptuous thoughts that make us unrighteous judges. So we receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus has placed us in the fellowship of his church. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation to proclaim the good news that only Jesus justifies sinners. If you'd stand with me and we'll uh, read together John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only